like to welcome everyone to the 11th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and are free and open to the public. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia, and I'm serving as the host for these discussions. We've moved the discussion today to YouTube Live, so thank you for joining us for this experiment. I hope it makes it slightly easier for attendees to find the discussions. The link to this discussion will be the same every weekday, and you can find it at this YouTube channel, the Scott Knowles YouTube channel. You can email me, or you can find me on Twitter. Please help spread the word, and please send suggestions for future guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a guest. You can also hear these COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for the Slow Disaster Podcast. Tomorrow, we will hold the, um, I'm just sorry, I'm just getting a note here about whether or not we're reaching our audience. Okay, I hope we are. Um, tomorrow, we will hold, hold the COVID calls at 4 p.m. And we will talk to historian of American science, technology, and politics, Peter Shulman about the Defense Production Act. So please join us for that, 4 p.m., different time tomorrow. As of today, there are globally 770,653 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, up from 586,140 cases on Friday. 156,931 of those are in the United States, up from 97,000 226 Friday. There are now a total of 2,880 deaths reported in the U.S., up from 1,478 on Friday. On Friday, I was lucky enough to be on a panel discussion hosted, of course, remotely by the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia, and it was moderated by Adriana Link, um, and I was there alongside Jane Boyd, who's a curator at the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia, an extraordinary museum. Um, when you have a chance to return to Philly or check them out online. And also with Johns Hopkins historian of medicine, Graham Mooney. One of the things I really appreciated about the conversation was that people were asking for explicitly historical understandings of what we're living through now with COVID-19. And they didn't want um, cases just from 20 years back. Uh, we were pulling examples from across multiple centuries and many geographical locations. These kinds of discussions they're not just about knowing names and dates, historians get that bad rap, um, but uh, it was about pulling out resonant cases and I think also hopefully expanding the imagination of people who are trying to solve a global crisis now. So I'm excited today to continue this historical discussion and I'm looking, uh, we'll be looking today for useful resonances and also be drawing on the work of scholars who are pulling the world together in their work. So these are really global historians. And I wanna warn the audience, we have three historians on the call today, including myself. So we do have, I guess, a historian's quorum here. If we need to make any historical decisions, I guess we have the numbers to do it. So let me introduce today's guests. Uh, First is Cindy Irmas. Cindy is a history professor at the University of Texas, San Antonio. She specializes in the history of science, medicine, and the environment, especially catastrophe and crisis management in 18th century France and in the Atlantic and Mediterranean worlds. 
She's working on a book titled The Great Plague Scare of 1720, Disaster in Society in the 18th Century World. My other guest is Christina Fryer. She's a lecturer in Black British History at Goldsmiths, University of London. And she's a historian of modern Britain, the British Empire, and the modern Caribbean, focusing on Britain's centuries-long imperial and especially post-emancipation entanglements with the Caribbean. She's working on a book also titled The Measure of Empire, Disaster and British Imperialism in Post-Emancipation Jamaica. So I really want to thank uh, everyone for joining us today. Christina and Cindy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank, thank you for having so me. So I want to encourage people to ask questions. Uh, we will not be using the chat on YouTube live until we I get a slightly better handle on that. So what I'd like to ask people to do today, if you have questions during the call, please just put them on Twitter and tag me and I'll get those. Or you can email me at any time during the call, sgk23 at drexel.edu. So you can get questions to us that way. And I hope you will. I think Twitter will be the fastest way. And you can just um, post your question and, and tag me at US of Disaster and, and you'll find us. Okay, so let's get started. I actually have a, a question um, sort of a broad question for both of you. And Christina, I'll put it to you first. I'd like to really start in the present um, and get a report uh, from you about what's going on in London. Um, so first again, again thank you for, uh, for having me and for inviting me for this conversation that I'm really looking forward to. Um, so I actually Liverpool, um, although I work, uh, although I work in London, um, which does have its benefits and then I think uh, London seems to be something of a hot, of a hot spot, uh, as much as we can tell, um, and things seem to be progressing a little bit slower uh, in, in Liverpool. Um, but basically what's been happening here um, is that the British government, I think, did early what the U.S. government is now doing um, with its sort of herd immunity plan. Um, there were sort of, there was talk about sort of letting the, uh, the majority of the country get, get, uh, get COVID-19, um, some vague talk about cocooning vulnerable people, um, but without any actual measures of how, or any clear measures of how this was going to transpire. Um, and in contrast to, I think, what we, what you saw in the U.S., um, fewer institutions and fewer people in power outside of government felt empowered to act. So universities started closing quite late. Um, so universities did not all start uh, going face-to-face -face until um, basically this time last week uh, was when my was when my university uh, called it. Um, the previous week many universities had actually been on strike so I think to, 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 to some extent um, the possible spread at, at universities was somewhat dampened um, because uh, so many of us had been on strike the week before. Um, but since last Monday the UK has been on uh, on lockdown um, that basically involves one walk a day for, or one, not one walk, one leaving, one, one time to leave your house for exercise a day, um, groceries and supplies as needed, um, and of course, uh, trips to um, any sort of medical uh, appointment or medical care. Um, and other than that, we are supposed to be on, on, on lockdown. Um, and the conservative Tory government has basically been in the process of turning towards various um, left-leaning measures to provide support for those people who are going to, who are supposed to be staying home. Um, there also are 
I don't quite know if it's food shortages, but there are significant difficulties in accessing food for many people. Um, grocery delivery services are completely overrun. Um, mm. There's a lot of uh, shelves that uh, at grocery stores uh, that are um, not properly stocked. Um, and so there's kind of been a rallying around, there's an interesting rallying around of the NHS, which is the National Health Service that is free at the point of use for uh, all people in Britain. Um, and it is, there's a rallying around, around the service to protect the service. The tagline here is stay home, uh, protect the NHS, um, uh, with the idea that the NHS will be, uh, quickly overrun with, with cases. Um, and so some of the ideas about how to, how to do that are tied to making sure that there are times when people who work with the NHS can get food, uh, can go to grocery stores, uh, by themselves, et cetera. So, um, there was a very slow, uh, it was a very slow path to where we are now. Um, and as some of uh, viewers and listeners may know, now a, f a number of cabinet ministers and include and the prime minister himself uh, have COVID-19. Um, so uh, three weeks ago, they were all sort of acting as though this was not uh, something to worry about. And now significant, or a fair number of um, members of, of members of the cabinet and the prime minister, the prime minister himself now have, uh, now have the disease. What an extraordinary timeline. So you've gone from uh, the prime minister saying, let's all just hold on and get herd immunity to you're allowed outside for one exercise break per day. I mean, that's yes, more stringent a, a, than anything in the U.S. In about, I would say in about <clears> a 10, in about a 10 day span, this took place. Um, and it, it was it was so extreme that I think the weekend of March sixth, seventh, uh, and eighth, there was a major horse racing uh, festival in Cheltenham that preceded um, the. So even sporting events were quite slow to shift. Um, I believe that was also the weekend that the Premier League um, suspended action, but that seems to have been tied to the fact that a number of players and a uh, man, the manager of uh, Arsenal, I believe, also contracted. Uh, uh, contracted COVID-19. Um, but yes, it's been a very radical shift. Um, and there's actually quite a fair amount, we're hearing a lot of reports of pretty significant policing of people's activities. So questions about, um, so there, there's a lot of language around, you should only be with members of your own household. And that's those, you should only move in groups in your own household to say the grocery store or whatever. Um, there are reports of a fair amount of policing of that. Some Some reports of policing of what kinds of goods people are buying, what counts mm. as an essential food. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in some ways, some of the lack of clarity around some of the restrictions has then led to very aggressive policing um, that I think some people weren't anticipating, but you know, those of us who work on race in particular sure. are always going to be anticipating that kind of, that kind of policing. But okay, it has well, been a very rapid shift. Well, let's put a pin in that because I think we are going to want to come back to the yeah. historical resonances with that. So thank you for the some dispatch from the UK. Cindy, can you give us um, situation in San Antonio? Yes, and first, thank you. Um, as Christina was saying, thank you so much for having us for the invitation. So uh, there's, uh, I'll begin by saying there's no policing here. Uh, I do wonder whether it's coming. I just saw uh, an hour ago that Governor of Virginia, uh, Democratic Governor of Virginia, uh, put a stay-at-home order all the way until June 10th. So um, not the case here in Texas. Um, on the contrary, so the university has been closed since uh, you know it's been uh, weeks already because we happened to go into spring break 
at the time, like so many others. Um, but there is no lockdown. So businesses closed uh, now a couple of weeks ago, uh, almost a couple of weeks ago. Uh, restaurants are running limited service, so you can pick up or do delivery if they offer delivery. But you can, you know, I there's still a surprising number of people out and about. I can see the highway from my home, and uh, there's plenty of people out and about, so mm. um, definitely no, no lockdown. Uh, there's essential services, so the, the idea is they're supposed to stay at home, right? Stay at home willingly, uh, and that most businesses are closed, but in reality, what most businesses have done is find loopholes to stay open and consider themselves essential services, and I'm talking about things like car wash companies, right? So, nice. uh, yeah, an essential service. I, I don't remember the last time I washed my car. <laughs> Mm. But um, so so it is a little different. Testing has been an issue in San Antonio as well, as in many cities here of course, uh, in the United States. Um, I happen to have a colleague, in fact, who was in need of a test and uh, eventually did get it, but was one of very few. Uh, and this was now a week and a half ago to, to be able to, to access that. So I'm hoping that that's getting better here slowly. We're unclear also on the number of uh, people with COVID-19 here in San Antonio. Obviously, testing is a big reason for that, right? But also just um, information, you know, just access to information that's accurate and updated daily. I'm having trouble with that. Well, thank you for that update. I have a lot of family in Austin and San Antonio, and uh, it's been an odd situation uh, you know, coming from the Northeast where we have relatively, our governors have taken from U.S. standards, stronger action. And then to see the governor of Texas a couple of days ago say, we're quarantined and we can't come in uh, to Texas without these quarantine measures, including telling the state troopers that they're to stop people at the border. I mean, it's, it's a replay of so much of, sort of Trump's language around building borders and forcing borders. Maybe we can touch on some of that in our conversation. Well, thank you for that for that update from San Antonio. So um, let's let's turn to history, and I think it would be good maybe to start um, by talking about what it means to be talking history, but in the now. You know, is there such a thing as an unprecedented moment? I've heard that so many times in the last couple of weeks. We're living, in fact, I may have said it. Uh, we seem to be living in an unprecedented moment. Um, isn't it really the job of the historian to say, eh, you might think so, but let me, let me introduce you to some ideas you may not, have, may not have encountered before. What is your opinion on that? Let's start with you, Cindy. Are we really in unprecedented times? Uh, I think as is the case uh, with a lot of uh, you know, crises like this, there's an, there are elements that are unprecedented, right? There are certain aspects of it that could be unprecedented, but there's so much that we can actually, so many lessons that we can actually draw from past experiences, right? And that's kind of, that's, that's exactly what we're here for, historians. And so, for example, one unprecedented aspect of the, the current public health crisis, of course, is that, you know, Despite the fact that, for example, uh, 102 years ago, 1918, the Spanish, so-called Spanish influenza uh, was, you know, of uh, uh, much more fatal, of course, and in much larger numbers and came in waves and things like that. Things that, you know, these, these kinds of uh, uh, lessons that we could possibly draw, that we could look back to. But it is unprecedented that today, you know, there's never been a crisis like this in a world this populated. So there is going to be a lot. Uh, that is new about this particular pandemic, just because there's so much 
of you know there's so many more of us and and obviously uh you know it's, it's a different world right obviously um travel was uh or air travel was nascent in the turn of the 20th century and not so much now which explains in part how we got here in the first place right. but um right. to answer your question a lot is uh is not unprecedented right and and that's exactly kind of the work that i and i'm sure christina uh and you uh, as well that we do right this is what we do in our research as we look back to try to take some of these lessons well christina what's your what's your take on the what do you tell people when they say uh this seems to be awfully unprecedented prove me wrong historian what is your reaction to that? <laughs> um, I mean, I think it, I think it is certainly, you know, as a historian, I'm not comfortable with the language of unprecedented. It is, I think it's, it's our um, professional requirement that we, that we check that impulse. Um, on the other hand, I think it is true that for almost nobody, um, or for, for the vast majority of people, this is uh, unprecedented in their lifetime. So, or in living memory. Um, so, I don't want to sort of dismiss um, the levels of disorientation that I think a lot of us are feeling right now um, and and the way that it feels like the world has sort of ended in a kind of way and a new world is uh, that sort of that normal is over. Um, I don't want to be too harsh or too quick to uh, to reject those ideas simply because we can turn to a, a number of similarly dis disorienting moments in the past. I think for the vast majority of people, um, this is something that they could not have imagined even a month or two ago um, and that they have no sort of reference point for. Um, on the other hand, I, you know, and, and I think I should say I sort of even myself as the non-historian in me, I'm, I'm, as I'm just trying to figure out how to move through this world, I do mm. sort of, it, like fall into that habit that this feels unprecedented, and then I have, and then I have that 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 check. Um, but I do think actually Cindy's right that the that the number of people um, in the world now that that adds a certain um, aspect uh, to it. The the ways that we're connected, um, the sort of I the idea that, um, for example, that uh, flights being grounded or airlines uh, uh, halting operations, I feel like that feels more monumental than that might have 50, 50 years ago. So the ways that we're connected um, feel um, are, are quite different. Um, I think the way that we are all able to um, sort of shift to this digital world um, in, in, or some of us are able to shift to a digital world and then even the disorientation around that. Um, I don't know about y'all, but um, even though I'm currently on a Zoom call, mm -hmm. um, but you know, there's there's a high volume of Zoom calls. Yes, indeed, all day. <laughs> that we're every day. Yeah, that we're that we're all on, and those feel really, really strange. I think there are certainly some some aspects of this uh, of this particular pandemic that um, are unprecedented, even if the pandemic itself and the disorientation around that is not. You know, I think we have certainly in the historical profession, mostly dispensed with the idea that there's some objective history and the historian has some omniscient view and, and we're going to get to real history. I think, you know, the subjectivity is, is, of history is, is a crucial part of how we interpret history now. But at the same time, um, I have felt, you know, this, this problem of keep having some distance from the history, you know, the analyst and the actor. I mean, when we're we're doing our work and then we're simultaneously monitoring a news feed and I'm like, wow, you know, sometime in the future, people are going to write about what it was like to be in the longest enforced shelter in place in American history. And I was one of those. 
those people, it's a little bit closer to the flame um, than I think I'm certainly used to in that in that regard. And keeping that critical distance has been a little uh, jarring. And as you say, it's been compounded for me, Christina, by this sort of digital realm that we find ourselves in in this in this remote space. I'm used to having historical conversations with colleagues and students in person as a, a normal practice of daily life. And to be doing it in this way is really taking some some getting used to. Cindy, let me come to you uh, and and ask if you could take us now, let's go in the time machine and talk about your work. Let's talk about the plague of Provence, a subject that I'm not very well versed in. And you noted to me in your comments that we're on the tricentennial of this disaster. So take us into that world. Thank you. Yeah, so the tricentennial, we could say, begins this May, May 25th, if you would, if you consider the day that the, uh, the vessel that is supposed to have brought the infection to the Port of Marche arrives uh, uh, in France. And so, and then it'll continue for the next couple of years. So this is a, an outbreak of plague that um, begins, uh, as I said, in May of 1720, uh, when this vessel, the Grand Saint-Antoine, this ill-fated kind of infamous vessel that's later gonna be burned at a quarantine island off the coast of the port city, uh, arrives in the Port of Marseille after spending a year abroad uh, gathering, you know, cargoes of uh, rich fabrics and, and materials for uh, that are going to be sold at the uh, at a kind of annual, very famous fair, right, uh, or market, uh, the Foire de Beaucaire. And then this, uh, there had been deaths on board while the vessel was at sea, but because the vessel was in part owned by one of the uh, lead municipal uh, officers in Marseille. Uh, and much of its cargo belonged to some of these individuals as well, the ship was allowed to, despite mm. the deaths on board, to kind of forego some of the usual quarantine uh, uh, measures, right? For example, it, it underwent a quarantine of days rather than weeks, right? And so it was able to come uh, uh, on to uh, the harbor there. And that's, the, you know, according uh, to the historical, to, uh, you know, archival sources across Europe and the Atlantic world uh, that I've had the honor of working with, that I've been able to work with, um, this is uh, how the plague begins. And so what happens from there, the municipal authorities uh, basically put economics, right, in, you know, more, uh, they consider economics, the financial health of the city, more important than the public health of the city. They uh, kind of go out of their way to put in place a sort of uh, campaign of misinformation to where it's not plague. This isn't plague. This is just a malignant fever, right? This isn't an epidemic. This is going to be not uh, anything that puts us at risk. Um, and doctors on the ground are writing quite differently, right? There were doctors on the ground uh, whose letters I've been able to see that, uh, that attest to the fact that this was kind of, you know, just the campaign of, a dangerous campaign of misinformation. And so this, the, the plague spreads from there, and unfortunately it spreads throughout the entire southeast of France, primarily Provence, which is why I've come to call this uh, plague, the plague of Provence, rather than the, the plague of Marseille, as it was traditionally known. Um, ultimately, it is successfully contained to southeastern France, to Provence, as a result of the measures that are put in place primarily by uh, Paris, in fact. At this point, because of the failures of municipal authorities on the ground in Marseille and Provence, Paris, the regent at the time, steps in and kind of 
takes over the management of this crisis. And this is one of these major first moments in which we kind of look to the centralized, uh, you know, to the capital of an emerging nation state to step in in times of disaster and mitigate the, some mm. of the damage. And this goes for the rest of Europe and the colonies as well, where the, the capitals of these emerging nation states are the ones that are putting measures in place uh, across the Mediterranean world and Europe to prevent, and at the Atlantic world, I should say as well, to prevent the, uh, the spread of the infection beyond Provence. And so a lot of long-term ramifications come out of this. For example, the public, uh, in terms of public health, for example, in Spain, uh, the, uh, what is now the Ministerio de Salud began at some point as this Bureau of Public Health uh, that was put in place in 1720 in response to this plague, right? So, and we see this, you know, uh, elsewhere in the Atlantic world, the Mediterranean world at this time. So it's a, it's a major moment in the history of disasters and, and crisis, public health crisis management, definitely. Well, I want to ask you a couple of follow-ups and, and maybe, Christina, if you want to ask any questions about Cindy's work, please feel free. But I want to dive in on this a little bit more. So 1720, um, you'll have to correct the fact that I was trained as an Americanist and a historian of science and technology. So my French history is not what it should be, but um, what kind of power struggles is that throwing in relief in 1720? We're not, are we sort of in a Robert Darnton kind of, kind of great cat massacre moment here? Is this a, is this a prelude to what's coming not too much further down the road with society breaking apart in France or is it too early for that? Uh, yes and no. In some ways, it's too early for that. It depends on the perspective, I guess, on what specifically you're looking at. What we could say about this period of time, which is to say the, the first half, certainly, of the 18th century, the 1720s um, in particular, and the 30s, uh, you know, so before the Seven Years' War, for instance, is that we are seeing the sort of, uh, which began in what is called the long 18th century, right? So the late 17th century. We start to see, in many ways, after the Thirty Years' War, the kind of centralizing of, of these, uh, of what, I, what I'm calling, you know, these emerging nation states, like I said, and, uh, and the increasing reliance on these capital, the capitals of these states, to step in, you know, to kind of take the place of what the church used to be in charge of, in terms of welfare, for example, uh, and, and for that matter, like I said, crisis management. This is something that used to be, you know, if, if there was a disaster taking place prior to the 18th century uh, or the late 17th, really what we have is local responses taking place on the part of either municipal officials or in many ways, the local ecclesiastical authorities, right? Um, that step in and they're the ones that are able to, to do any kind of, uh, of, uh, of mitigation. And this really starts to change uh, over the first half of the 18th century when, when as I said, it's, it's more, these responses are, people are looking increasingly, certainly in the case of France, which I'm most familiar with, increasingly looking towards, uh, towards Paris in this case, or in later Versailles, right? To step in and fix the problem. So this is not to say that this is a continuous kind of line to where centralizing begins in 1720 and continues in terms of uh, disaster management to today. There's very much an ebb and flow, and it, de it depends in a lot of ways of the local historical context of where in the world you're looking at. But it's certainly, you know, the earliest, biggest, right, kind of most kind of uh, telling, most monumental, biggest example of centralized disaster management in, uh, as an early modernist, right, that, uh, that I've come across. And, and in many ways, that's, uh, that's the kind of the approach that I'm taking, right? I'm I looking see. at the way that the disaster management, uh, it changes disaster management across 
mostly the Atlantic world and, and parts of the uh, Mediterranean. Hmm. So there is a struggle there in some ways, but by this point, as I said, people on the ground are, are increasingly looking towards uh, the capitals for this kind of response. The and, expectation. And how much in the, in the mind of the people writing about it at that time was the Black Death? Is there, are they ref, is there reference back to the, the Great Plague of the 14th century? Do they see themselves as somehow much more modern, efficient, organized, they must have, but I wonder how, you, how that emerges at that moment. They do. They see themselves in many ways as having, it, well, again, there's kind of, a, there's a lot of gray there because they do see themselves as far more advanced by the 18th century than they would have been in the 14th, you know, looking back to the Black Death in particular, the yeah. beginnings of the pandemic, yeah. but, but they're not really referenced, you know, they're still using a lot of the same methods. They're using quarantines, they're using embargoes. They're using uh, smoking, right? The, the, the idea that smoke can break up the miasmas that cause disease uh, and, and, and all of these kind of different methods. Uh, what's different is where these responses are coming from in a lot of ways, right? And um, yeah, yeah. So. Well, so thank you for taking us into that. Uh, let's see, um, Christina, can, would you mind bringing us into some of your research? And I know you've been writing about um, sort of the British Caribbean and colonialism, and, and you used this great phrase when we were talking about questions, you talked about the manufacture of vulnerability via colonialism. It's such an amazing phrase. Can you take us inside your work a little bit? Yeah, so I am uh, working on a project that is about a series of uh, disasters and crises in Jamaica um, that are sort of mostly around Kingston, Jamaica, uh, which would become the capital um, of, uh, of the island. Um, and I'm do I'm focusing on the period after the end of slavery, so from roughly 1840 to 1910. Um, and so I'm looking at this series of uh, five case studies, um, three of which I think fall under sort of the classic definition of disaster, um, two of which don't. Um, but the idea is to both look at those particular events and, and um, how the British government and the British colonial government responded to them. But in particular, I'm interested in what their response says about how they viewed uh, the colony of Jamaica, which was really becoming quite marginal, or, the, or at least the narrative that we have is that Jamaica was becoming quite marginal in the late 19th century because it no longer was as productive as a plantation, uh, as a plantation colony. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of the things that are sort of classically understood as disaster, I look at a series of fires that happened in Kingston. Um, I look at the 1907 earthquake. Um, and then in particular, what's particularly relevant for us today is the first chapter of that project, the book project, um, is about the 1850, uh, 1850 to 1851 cholera epidemic um, in, in Jamaica. And so this was the second of the big 19th century uh, uh, cholera pandemics uh, around the world. Um, but the uh, the Caribbean, well, Jamaica at least, had not been hit by the first wave in the 1830s. Um, so this is also the first time that Jamaica um, had uh, had experienced cholera. Um, and from you know from what we know, it seems to have emerged in the city of, or the town of Port Royal, which is across the uh, Kingston Harbor from uh, from Kingston. Um, and it then pretty rapidly spread through, and, and I should say that this is in October of 1850, um, it pretty rapidly spread through um, the cluster of three southern towns. So there's Port Royal, there was uh, uh, Kingston, 
and then what was still the capital at the time, Spanish Town, which is about 13 miles inland from, uh, from uh, Kingston. And then it spread through uh, other, other parts of, um, of the island. And what I'm particularly interested in is the sort of dialogue between um, British public health uh, theories and ideas um, and the attempts to sort of use those to think through a set of problems happening in Jamaica. So very quickly, when I was reading, when I was reading through the documents, what stood out to me, um, and this was, uh, this was part of my dissertation project, so um, I was probably not as cynical yet as I, as I should have been. Um, but what stood out to me very quickly and surprised me at the time, but does not surprise me now, is just how much they were talking about labor. And so basically all of the deaths of, uh, of black Jamaicans in particular was talked about as lost labor. Um, mm. So lost laborers um, or, and, and not just that, it, that they were talked about as lost laborers, but they were then very quickly connected to an on, what was seen as an ongoing set of problems about emancipation and the way that uh, most of the British commentators saw emancipation by the 1850s as failing. Um, and it was, they believed it was failing because the plantation economy was no longer thriving because free people um, were no longer working on plantations, on sugar plantations in particular, um, to the extent that was necessary. Point um, of clarification, when had yeah. emancipation been granted? So emancipation had been granted in 1834. There was a four-year labor transition system okay. called apprenticeship. So full freedom was 1838. Okay, so we're 14 years into, uh, 13 years into experiment of emancipation at this point. Yes. The and pandemic they're, they're, Yeah, comes. and they're using the language of experiment. So that language yeah, is, is, very, is very prominent um, in, 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 the, in, the, um, in the documentation. And yes, so pretty quickly after emancipation comes this uh, very significant um, pandemic that... Um, I think nearly 10% of the Jamaican population uh, died uh, as a result of this, uh, of this epidemic. So, so Jamaica was, was incredibly hard hit proportionally um, to, uh, from, from, from the epidemic. Um, and so I'm, I look in particular, I look at a few figures, but there's one in particular, a, uh, a public health epidemiologist um, named Gavin Milroy, who had been very involved in um, British and um, Brit so Britain had a had cholera or had a, had a, had another round of a cholera epidemic in 1849. Milroy had been very involved in uh, public health campaigns um, during that epidemic, um, and he happened to be um, he was an opponent of quarantine. So this is also at a moment where British public health um, policy is very anti-quarantine, mm. and. Um, he goes to Jamaica, he travels around, um, he writes a series of reports, and basically the solutions that he offers for, uh, for cholera um, is basically increased sanitation, which has some resonances in today's moment. Um, so he recommends increased sanitation, um, and both sort of broadly across the, the island, but also in terms of people's personal habits. Um, but he's very clear that that Increased sanitation is also about solving the problem of uh, of, eman of emancipation. So this sort of moral and clean living is going to both uh, stop or keep cholera at bay, uh, but then is also going to mm. produce this sort of group of labor of of, of people who were willing who be willing to work uh, wage labor uh, on plantations. Um, let me. Um 
Cindy, to you, I mean, this really interesting point that Christina's raising about the framing of the pandemic in terms of lost labor and therefore lost wealth for investors. Do you see some, a similar dynamic playing out in, in Provence? Absolutely. This, uh, the 1720 plague was seen as a major financial disaster for the city. They do eventually recover from it in, in uh, you know, a few years after it's over in 1722. But at the time it was seen as, you know, you couldn't get food inside of there. It was a disaster building upon disaster uh, as a result of what began as, you know, this epidemic. And um, yeah, absolutely. I would say yes. So, I, I mean, there, there's a strong resonance up, up to our time, clearly with that. And it's been a dynamic. I, you know, I first started being noticing this and being irritated by it uh, in December when it seemed to me that the Dow, the number of deaths in Wuhan and the Dow, performance of the Dow Industrial Index were being reported sometimes in the same soundbite, literally. They would say, this number of people died today and this is the impact on the Dow. And, but I think what you're both telling me is that I shouldn't be so, so um, surprised by that, that a fusing of discussion about the humanity of epidemic and the financial ruin of epidemic has a historical grounding here, maybe a much mm -hmm. older one than I had considered. Absolutely. Even in the uh, in the face of, you know, piling bodies in Marseille months into the epidemic at this point, there were efforts on the part of officials to say that, you know, to, to, to declare the city and the region free of plague before it was free of plague, just to get other states to lift their embargoes against the poor city and the region of southeastern France. And so there was, you know, in, at least for some, the concern was absolutely more financial than anything else, you know, uh, at least for, for, for those, I suppose, who had the luxury of, of, of having, you know, right. caring more about, than about public health. Yeah. And one of the things yeah. that I see in, in, in my, uh, in, in the work I'm doing on cholera in Jamaica um, is that there is um, a strong assumption that, that, certain kinds of aid are actually not going to be that beneficial. Um, and not beneficial because they won't help people, but not beneficial because they might, in, they might um, encourage people to continue to be, to be lazy. So there's this idea that payments, shouldn't, uh, payments towards families that say lost um, a loved one uh, shouldn't be too much because that might then mm -hmm. discourage, um, discourage various people in, in that unit from, from getting back to work. Um, so there, there's, there's this constant um, dialogue between, say, the Jamaican governor and the, uh, the British uh, Secretary of State for the Colonies about the kind, uh, about the kind of labor. Uh, and they also, in, they also think about various forms of indentured immigration schemes uh, trying to replace, um, to replace the labor um, that, uh, that, was, that was lost. Um, and one of the things you're thinking about what's happening here in, in the UK, one of the things over the weekend um, that we learned is that they're now trying to figure out where they can, or various, I think the farming industry is trying to figure out where it can get labor from for the up, for upcoming fruit harvests. Um, now that Britain has left the European Union and that's a more difficult task. And then also uh, borders have closed. Um, so right. even how people uh, from outside EU countries are gonna be able to get to Britain um, to pick various uh, fruit crops. But again, that idea of bringing in labor to solve a problem um, that is to some extent uh, the 
that they believe is going to happen because of the pandemic, but also that ties back to pre-existing political, um, political decisions. get to a question here by uh, our colleague Kerry Smith and he's asking uh, he'd like to hear from uh, from both of you about the prevalence of scapegoating um, as in the identification of others as the primary vectors for the introduction of disease or disorder in the midst of disease and he's interested in the play between your historical cases and contemporary examples. Um, Christina you want to pick that up? I think there may be some good resonance there with your work. Yeah I mean I haven't found too much in the in the materials that I've been looking at uh, too much concern about where uh, cholera came from specifically, um, but there is a considerable amount of scapegoating of uh, poorer, um, free black people in uh, uh, black people in um, towns in particular, but also um, in what were described as uncleanly homes. So there's this very strong idea um, that poor Jamaicans, poor black Jamaicans. Um, are living in squalor uh, and in and in filth, um, and that if if that if not necessarily where the disease came from, that that's sort of where it is festering. Um, so there's a lot of description about a clean. Uh, so there's some descriptions about say um, the house of a white elite being completely fine, there being no disease there, and then the backyard where there are servants, that's where the disease is sort of hovering. And of course, the, the, they're still working with a lot of miasmatic theories um, here as well. So, um, so poor black Jamaicans who had recently been freed uh, within the previous 15 years, uh, come in for a lot of scrutiny about their livelihoods and the belief that, that is where the disease is resting and festering. And, and it's explicitly racialized. The way you're describing it. Um, not so simple. <laughs> not so simple. I think it is, it is, it is, let me, in some cases it's, it's explicitly racialized, in some places it's not. Um, so there is a sort of slippage around um, sort of paupers, the poor, um, which generally means, um, means black people. Um, on other, in, in other, in other cases though, it does, they are quite explicit. Um, so sometimes they are, they are describing, um, they, there's a, there's a trick that they use, um, in, in a lot of these reports where they'll list one person or one family, um, and then make a broader claim. So it'll be, you know, so-and-so's home as in Negro villages everywhere. Mm -hmm. And then on and on and on about how, about how it's, uh, how it's not clean. Um, so there's some of that that's going on, um, and then the, the even the language of laziness at this at this point um, is being commonly applied to Black people in Jamaica um, and in the rest of the Caribbean. But Jamaica tends to be um, the real focus for a lot of for a lot of British observers because it had been um, such a valuable such a valuable colony. So I think it is both explicitly racialized, and then sometimes it's not explicitly, but but it's um, it's implicitly racialized. Cindy, what about in 18th century France, this issue of scapegoating 
finding an other, having to maybe even manufacture an other outsider to give some sort of understanding of where the contagion is coming from? Does that show up in your work? It absolutely does. And uh, we can say that you can look at it in two, in two ways. There's one, for instance, historically with the plague outbreaks in the medieval to early modern period of Europe, which is to say from the Black Death of the 14th century all the way through the 18th, we have um, domestic scapegoats with, for instance, Jewish communities, right. which are accused of poisoning the wells and, and causes the anti-Semitic pogroms of the, of the uh, Black Death era and, and things like that. But really, I would say the, the bigger, in fact, even the larger kind of operating scapegoat here uh, is, uh, you know, the anybody, you know, for instance, Eastern Mediterranean, take your pick, right? So the plague comes to be known uh, in, in Europe uh, in many ways incorrectly, right? As we're learning more and more these days with genetic studies that look back at this, uh, at these kinds of histories um, as an Orientalist, excuse me, as an Oriental, I should say, affliction. These Orientalist narratives are what's explaining where the plague comes from for hundreds of years. That definitely the case in the 18th century. By the time you get to the, to the 18th century in Spain, the plague is referred to as La Peste Levantina, literally the Levantine plague by Levant, I mean the Eastern Mediterranean, right? And so there, the, the scapegoat there, uh, you know, this is, this is the way it was explained. It's by scapegoat slash orientalist narrative, you know, rather than, uh, than, than questioning that. It was just taken as, as fact for a very, the, very long time. The, the continuity of that to me is pretty extraordinary. And I, I mean, but the way both of you have explained too, this sort of, this concept I've been thinking a lot about, the sort of intersectionality of disaster too, that we may have multiple different kinds of disasters happening and intersecting, but also the, the way we usually think of intersectionality, which is compounded identities, um, which make an other even more other in certain circumstances. I mean, if you look at Philadelphia in the last 10 years of the 18th century, three yellow fever outbreaks, and the first one, the major one, that also killed 10% of the population, we believe, at that time, um, was blamed on French immigrants, elite French immigrants. Um, but then when the assumptions that it put into place about uh, African Americans living in Philadelphia, that they were somehow immune to it and that they should be then tasked as the primary caregivers. So you have all of these sort of national and racial and the Catholic uh, an anti-Catholic feeling, literally compounding on top of each other to find multiple uh, reasons to not trust the outsider at that moment when uh, anti-European feeling is very strong in America in the last 10 years of the 18th century. I want to shift, um, we have about a little bit more than 10 minutes left, and I wanted to shift over, Cindy, uh, to you first about the science here a little bit. So you were mentioning some of these uh, methods that were used, which some of them were the tried and true methods going back to the 14th century. Uh, so we're in a pre-Pasteur moment here in 1720. How did the people in the, at that time make sense of the disease process? What actual measures did they use? What did they think was going on in the body? Right, as you, uh, as you just hinted, this was pre-Pasteur, right? This was pre-germ theory, and so the understanding of uh, every aspect of health and disease came from uh, what we could call the humoral theory, right? Um, 
which is to say the belief for hundreds of years from, you know, from Hippocrates, basically, all the way until the 19th century and, frankly, well into the 20th century. Um, the understanding of health and disease uh, was that it came from within, not from without. Today we understand that our illness is caused by microorganisms, by pathogens, whether it's a virus, a bacteria, so on and so forth. And uh, the understanding uh, before germ theory was that it was caused by an imbalance of the humors that make up the human body. The humors, there were, it was believed that our bodies were made up of four humors or fluids, right? Black bile, yellow bile, uh, and then uh, phlegm and, and red bile, of course, which is blood. And the idea was to keep these in balance and an imbalance, right, would cause dyscrasia, which is to say an imbalance of the humors that could make you sick. But it could also make you uh, crazy, right? It could also affect your temperament, your personality. Every aspect of being human was in many ways explained uh, by, on the one hand, God, of course, and on the other hand, this understanding of the humors, right? And so, um, you know, the plague, for example, was explained on these terms as well. These you became sick with the plague because you inhaled or your body absorbed miasmas, which were uh, bad gases, bad vapors that were believed to exist in the air. Um, and they could be caused by a variety of things, stagnant water, so you wouldn't go anywhere near swamps. Um, or for example, the position of the stars, it was tied to astrology in a lot of ways. If there was a comet, that could be a very bad sign. Uh, as well, you know, impending disease or, and things like that. Uh, any of these things could cause the miasmas or bad vapors that caused uh, disease. And so the way to manage disease, and you know, this starts to change again, this very much starts to change in the long 18th century. Um, uh, Leeuwenhoek, for instance, in the 1670s, I guess, is working on these ideas about a, uh, an animalcule, this what was believed to be uh, an invisible animalcule or small creature, so to speak, that can cause illness if it gets into the body. So we're mm. getting there, mm. but this is, you know, so to speak, this has not uh, translated to the masses at this point, far from it, right? This would take all the way, as you know, into uh, Pasteur and Coke in the 19th century to actually start gaining traction. Mm -hmm. So the idea is there, and it really starts to develop in a lot of ways on the conversations in 1720 surrounding the 1720 plague, but the general understanding is that it's caused by miasmas, and so the way to treat it is to bring, you know, these, to make the miasmas go away. How do you do that? Um, well, for instance, loud sounds. Sometimes you would fire, uh, you know, a gun or something to break up the air, to break up the bad air that causes disease, mm. uh, right? Things like that. Um, you might be, to bring your humors back in balance and, and make you healthy again, you would have to perhaps practice bloodletting to where you bleed, you have somebody bleeds you, right? Out of your ankle or uh, from your arm, because maybe you have an overabundance of blood and it's making you sick, or an overabundance of phlegm, so you need to throw up, or you an overabundance of black bile and you need an enema, right? So these were the treatments um, that were in place for hundreds of years uh, into the 19th century and, and, and the beginning of uh, the 20th. I want to remind everyone that we're speaking with historians Christina Fryer and Cindy Ermas about pandemics in history, and we're just hearing now about the many different ways to treat the plague in the in 1720, including shooting off firearms. Uh, I'm mm -hmm. not sure if that's being practiced in contemporary uh, United States, but if it was going to be anywhere, Texas would be where that uh, would yes. be taking place. As a native Texan, I can say that. 
Um, Christina, to you, I want to, I just want to ask, you know, by 1851, um, understandings of medicine had certainly changed, but I imagine also in Jamaica, there must have been some sort of split between a notion of more modern medicine and maybe more folk or traditional medicine. I don't know if that's something you find in, in your work at all. Can you speak to that? So there, I mean, what, what's, what shows up most in, in my work, although there's, there's certainly a, a number of Creole or folk practices. So uh, Mary Seacole's, uh, in her narrative, uh, in her, her narrative, she describes um, her own, the, the, or she describes um, tending to various cholera victims using uh, the folk uh, healing methods that she had learned from her, uh, from her mother. Um, but part of what I'm really looking at in, in my, um, in, in my work on this is that actually the, the, there is still a significant debate over where disease comes from in the 1850s in, in Britain, um, because we still don't have germ theory. Um, and, uh, while John Snow had begun to suspect that cholera, uh, was, uh, was transmitted through water, um, or through, uh, contaminated water, um, there hadn't been much uptake yet on his on his theories, which had only been developed in, in the late 18, 1840s. Mm -hmm. So there's a significant, so, so the, the stuff that uh, Cindy is talking about, although I, I have not encountered the loud noises uh, and gun yeah, That's a new one on me um, too. <laughs> but the, the idea of miasmas um, is, really, is really pretty common um, in, in the discussion uh, around, around cholera. And there are kind of two camps. So there's the anti-contagionist camp, which believes that disease did not uh, transfer person to person. And so they, they were really quite uh, keen on the idea of sanitation. And also because it didn't transmit person to person, there was then no need for quarantine. And that fit in very well with the uh, free trade ethos that was really politically important in Britain beginning in the, 18, in the 1840s. Um, and then there's some contagionists who still don't fully, haven't fully figured out how it passes um, from person to person, but have a sense that, that, it, that it does, a sort of rudimentary um, contagion theory. The thing about cholera, though, in the 19th century is that it killed so quickly, and the methods that they had did so little but what I actually find in my research is that they don't really, they are not planning to do much about treating cholera. Mm. So there's almost this sense that once somebody gets cholera, that's, there's not much that can be done. They'll either survive that or they, or they won't. Um, and so instead, there's this really heavy emphasis on prevention. Um, so I think that is in part also how we get to this, that's part of what allows this conversation around labor and emancipation to rest in sanitation because there's just no thought of, uh, of, of treatment. And in fact, um, Gavin Milroy, the, the doctor that I mentioned earlier, he's one of three doctors who was sent to, um, or who were sent to uh, three Caribbean colonies from Britain and their remit from the secretary of state for the colonies basically made clear that they were not there to treat. They were there to observe. They were there to to um, share uh, prevention methods with with uh, doctors on the ground, but treatment was not in the in the sort of the things that they were really supposed to be spending a lot of time doing. I want to come to a really interesting question here off of Twitter, and it seems to be working well for people to post questions on Twitter. You can also email them to me at sgk23 at drexel.edu, and we still have uh, a few more minutes in the conversation. But this question I really like. After decolonization, were colonial administrative records 
documenting epidemics shared in any way with the independent nations? That's not a question I had ever thought of, but thinking about how that could be applicable to the whole history of decolonization, where you would have had you know, extensive record keeping. Does that, is that something either of you have uncovered in your, in your work? Cindy, to you first. I would, absolutely, I would definitely have to defer to Christina on this one because I have not come across okay. any particular. Christina, is that something, do you know? I mean, are those, those records after um, so the records, the records I look at are mostly in, in London. Really? Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's a, I think the rough divide as I understand it for the Jamaican records is that some of the local colonial records or so some of the records that were produced sort of at the parish level and then were um, sent to um, officials in Jamaica. Some of those have remained in, in Jamaica and you cannot uh, access them in, in London. Um, but the sort of, and I do a little bit of this work in, in, in my own research, there's this sort of elaborate bureaucratic process by which the governors are sending dispatches back to London um, and uh, along with various sort of files and reports. And all of those materials are still uh, are still in in Kew, which is where the so Kew is a suburb of London, which is where the National Archives, um, which the National Archives are. So, um, I think most of uh, most people who work on the British Caribbean are doing a lot of research, not all of it, but are doing a lot of research in um, historical research in um, London, um, and then the India Office files are actually in. Um, in the British Library. So again, there are records in India, there are records in the Caribbean, but they're not the same records and there aren't these sort of um, higher level uh, colonial governor to, um, to colonial office uh, correspondence. I actually initially understood the, the question. So, um, so I could actually say it's very similar in the case of France and, and Spain and, and others as well. The colonial records are actually in Aix-en-Provence uh, and uh, mm. in, in Paris, excuse me, in France. Um, and the colonial records for Spain, for instance, are in, are in Seville, right? So uh, you can get records, right? You can get a lot of these documents. They're going to be different documents if you go to the uh, actual, you know, uh, uh, country, you know, the Americas, anywhere in the Americas, you know, the colonies. Mm. For the non-historians who are watching right now, this is mostly what his, historians spend our time doing when we get together talking about, well, oh, those records are there and that archives and this archives and that one's close to a place where you can get a cheap lunch. We, this is, but, and I, but this speaks to this, the last question I actually want to ask to both of you, which is bringing us back into the present. Um, how is this pandemic changing the way that we practice the craft of history. What do you think this means to the way history will be practiced as we're, you know, right now and in, as we're going, even this think in the near term in the next six months to a year, restriction on travel, restriction on access to archives. Um, I just wanna think with you a little bit about what, what sort of changes we're living through in the way that historians can do their work. Christina, can I come to you on that? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this has been something I've been thinking about uh, as a particularly pressing matter because this year I've just started at Goldsmiths where I'm the lecturer in Black British History um, and I'm going to be running, um, or I am running the MA in Black British History, which will be launching. Um, it's one of the first of its kind um, in, in the country. Um, but I'm also teaching a module on uh, Black British History to undergraduates 
And their final assessment was to go to the archives um, and do a research paper. And those archives are closed and Black British history or Black British history records, particularly in, at, the, at the Black Cultural Archives or the George Padmore Institute or other archives have not been uh, digitized um, to the degree that other fields have been. Um, so I think, you know, one thing that concerns me is how do we do certain types of history that really still do require archive access? How do we do those kinds of history if we are um, going to be for the next six, you know, I don't know if we want to get into the question of how long we're going to be doing this. Um, but, you know, I suspect we're going to be at the very least on and off for the next, you know, six to 12 to 18 months. Um, and so then there's some really serious questions there about which kinds of history get to continue on. And those are the kinds that were already valued because those were the kinds that already had heavy digitized collections. And then for those of us working in areas of, of uh, history that have not had as much uh, digitized work. I mean, a lot of Caribbean, um, uh, a lot of, there are some really good digital um, in uh, endangered archives and digital digitization projects happening in the Caribbean. Um, but again, these are just fields and areas where that kind of research is going to be on hold in a kind of way when actually at a moment when I think we kind of need it most. I just want to highlight a term you use there, which the, is important for people to know, and that's endangered archive. And that unfortunately describes an increasing everyday number of archives, not just because of the pandemic. This is another example of sort of the slow disaster and the disaster event. So what's happening right now is going to further endanger archives that are already and special collections and historic house museums and many other kinds of historical assets um, that can be really crucial places for breakthroughs in knowledge. But as Christina, you said, this is going to put emphasis on collections that people can already get their hands on in person. Cindy, I'd like to get your take on this as we're wrapping up. Yeah, I actually, uh, I, I agree uh, completely with both of you. I have these similar concerns. I guess on the one hand, the best case scenario is that this accelerates the digitization of uh, primary source, you know, of archival sources across the globe. But the reality is that some are going to be valued more than others. And that's going to leave a lot of important documentation. Uh, it's going to, you know, it's going to remain inaccessible. And, uh, and that's a problem, you know, these archives that, uh, some of which I've worked uh, in as well, uh, for that matter, that are, you know, that suffer serious problems with underfunding, you know, they're just not funded, they're not valued. Um, this is going to be, a, a, you know, in many ways, tragic for both the archives and for the historians that, that work in them. And, uh, and I don't know what the solution is, really, given that funding is so important, and um, how do we direct funding to you know, equally across the board. I just, uh, it's, it's, it's a problem, yeah. I'm gonna have a follow-up COVID calls in a few weeks with um, some archive and museum directors to put this question directly to them as well. I think we have to have engaged this conversation. Um, as Christina said, you know, this is, if it's six months to get back to a period where maybe our universities are inviting students back on campus, um, you know, the reopening of places that are already hard to staff is going to take even longer. So to, just so that people understand the kind of work that we've heard talked about today um, requires not just the historians, but also the archivists, the librarians, the people who work in those spaces and keep those places running, usable, safe and clean. I mean, this is a community of scholars that we really need to be thinking about taking care of in this moment. Cindy Ermis, 
and Christina Fryer. I want to thank you both so much for sharing your insights. I cannot wait to read these books and I feel like I got a great preview of them today. And I just want to remind everybody that Peter Shulman will be on tomorrow 4 p.m. to talk about the Defense Production Act. And we'll see you all back here then on COVID calls. Thanks, everybody.